God obviously wanted to underline the memory verse from last week, Galatians 4 verse 6, because uh, the lectionary ensured that the sentence of the day was the memory verse from last week. Can you remember the uh, verse that we uh, focused on and that I encourage you to memorize from last week, Galatians 4 verse 6, uh, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Uh, the reading from last week was about 10 verses, but we really spent all of our time on just one verse, which kind of means we, we kind of didn't get to kind of plumb the depths of the other nine verses. We did spend a bit on verse four that said God sent his son uh, into the world. Uh, and uh, I, I sort of told myself coming into this week that well, this time there's 13 verses in our reading today. And this time I'm going to so, sort of try and cover uh, all of them. And then by the time I got to uh, four verses in, I pretty much had a, a 20, 25 minute sermon and, and thought, man, I've done it again. Uh, and so uh, really we're only going to get four out of 13 verses. We're going to be delving into verses eight to 11. 11 of uh, Galatians 4 this morning and really digging into what God is saying to us then. And unfortunately, we're just going to miss out on all the amazing truths in verses 12 to uh, 20. And, um, and, and if I had my time again, I would probably um, uh, kind of spend a lot more time going through uh, this wonderful epistle, these wonderful truths with you. I probably would have cut the series in half, done half uh, at one point and another half later on so that we didn't miss out on uh, all of the amazing things that um, God wants to show through his word. But who knows, maybe I'll be around long enough to have another stab at it uh, sometime in the future. Um, we're we're going to be doing a bit of work this morning, trying to wrap our heads around verses 8 to 11. And so, uh, as always, we need God's help. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for what you impressed on us last week, that you've sent the spirit of your son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, indeed, Lord, you are a good, good father. That is who you are, and we are loved by you. That is who I am, that is who we are, and we pray that by your spirit you would impress that upon us. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning and what it is that you want to show to us, Lord, help us to hear your spirit speak in our hearts through your word and by your spirit to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, verses 8 to 11, uh, Paul uh, is trying to set up a contrast. I want you to see that contrast as we go through it together. And the contrast that he's setting up is between gospel faith and worldly religion. Gospel faith, worldly religion. And, and what Paul wants to see in this contrast, the reason why he wants to set up this contrast is he wants them to be able to tell the difference so that he can they can reject the one and they can embrace the other. Uh, remember the background of these uh, converts in Galatia. Paul um, went on his first missionary journey. We find out later in the first, um, verse that um, he got sick and so he went and stayed with the Galatians and he shared the gospel with them. And, and these Galatians, they were from a non-Jewish background. They were, they were Gentiles. Uh, so they were pagans, if you like. Um, which means that, that the Galatians were much more like the younger brother in the, the story of the prodigal son. You know, there's two sons. They were much more like uh, the younger brother where they were worshipping um, idols. Uh, some of those temples, they got pretty raunchy in, in, in their kind of idol worship. And um, 
they, they didn't keep the Ten Commandments because, of course, they'd never heard of the Ten Commandments. They didn't even know what they were. That was the background that, that the Galatians had uh, come from. Not so much like the, the older brother who was um, re- religious and stayed at home. In other words, these Galatians had come from an irreligious background. And so look at what Paul says to them in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, here's the contrast between then and now, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? They're turning back to their old way of life. He says, how can you turn back again? Now, when you read that, it's very striking. And I want you to try and track with me here. When he says, how can you turn back again? You would think that what they're turning back to is their old ways. Worshipping idols, breaking the Ten Commandments, being irreligious, right? He says, how can you turn back again? But have a think about it. Is that what they were doing? Is that what the false teachers were trying to get them to do? to turn back to their old pagan ways? Look at verse 10. What they were doing is observing special days and months and seasons and years. Can you remember the false teachers weren't trying to get them to go back to their old pagan ways? Remember the false teachers had come up from Jerusalem and what were they saying to them? They were saying, Jesus is fine, Jesus is good, but you need to become a Jew in order to be saved. You need to get circumcised. In verse 10, you need to observe the Jewish special days and months and seasons and years. And so the false teachers, and what was happening in the Galatians, is that they weren't pressuring them to become irreligious. What the false teachers were doing was pressuring them to become religious, to become Jews so that they could be saved. And yet Paul says in verse 9, how can you turn back to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits to be enslaved to them again? I hope you can track with me and I hope, I hope I can explain this to you because it's utterly mind-blowing, it's amazing, and it's revolutionary. It's shocking. What he's trying to impress upon them is that trying to earn your salvation by careful observation of the law, by biblical legalism, special days, months, seasons, and years, and by becoming very, very religious, to do that, Paul is saying, is exactly the same thing and as much an enslavement to idols as turning back to their outright paganism and their idol worship and their immorality. Paul is saying they're the same thing. The phrase that he uses in verse 9 is really important. He says, how can you turn back to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? The weak and beggarly elemental spirits. He's actually picking up on a phrase um, and a reality, a a kind of um, uh, in Greco-Roman culture. Um, You see, the Greeks, uh, the Greco-Romans believed that... um, uh, in the elements of nature, they kind of worship the elements of nature, you know, earth, wind, fire, rain, uh, all of these things. And, and they believe that each of them had a God associated with all of the elements. And so um, in that culture, if you were a farmer, 
you would worship the God of the land so that you could get a good crop. And if you were a sailor, you would worship the the God of the the sea so that you could have a safe journey. And and, and they, in that culture, they they worship those elements so that life could go well with them. Um, In in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10, um, there's this controversy in the church in Corinth about food sacrificed to, to idols and whether, whether or not Christians should eat food sacrificed to idols. Because back, back then, the, the butcher shop was also the temple. Um, you, you'd get your food cut up in the temple and all of the meat would be sacrificed to idols. And, and Paul says to them, look, there's only one God. So whatever they're sacrificing to is not God. There's only one God. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. There's only one God. They're not worshipping to gods, to, to any God. But the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons. And then now in chapter 4, verse 8 of Galatians, Paul is warning the Galatians about, look at it, verse 8, becoming enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods saying you're going to become enslaved to those demons, to those things that are by nature not gods. But here's the mind-blowing thing. They're doing it not by going back to their paganism they're do- and becoming irreligious. They're doing it by becoming religious. They're doing it by being biblical legalists. Verse 10, observing special days. And yes, it's reverting back to the same dynamics. Here's one of the things that Paul is getting at in this verse. Paul is simply saying, everybody worships. The the reality is that uh, everyone in Cottesloe goes to worship on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday. It's just that we're all worshipping different things at different times in different places. But that doesn't change for one moment an iota the fact that everybody worships. Everybody is, re- is religious. Um, have you heard of Bertrand Russell? Uh, he, he was like one of the most articulate British atheists of the 20th century. Very articulate. Here's what he once confessed. British atheist. The centre of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God. I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found. But the love of it is my life. It's the actual spring of life within me. Everybody worships. See, Paul uses this word enslaved. How can you become enslaved again? And what Paul is saying is that whatever we worship, if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only God, that thing that we worship takes on an enslaving power. It takes on a spiritual power. We want it. We need it. We can't live without it. And we'll do anything we can to get it. And so what happens is that it becomes our master and we become It's slaves. Paul is talking about self-salvation, saving ourselves. So religious people define salvation in religious terms like God and heaven and the Bible and the holy book. 
But irreligious people define salvation in in any number of ways. Academic success, money, beauty, power, success, ideology, politics. But Paul is saying the rules are the same for both of them. The rules are that unless you lay down your life for your idol, you will not get the blessing that you so desperately want and so desperately need. And so that makes you a slave. When the idol says jump, all you can say is how high because you want it, you need it, you have to have it. And that takes on a spiritual power and a spiritual dynamic. I want you to hear what this spiritual slavery sounds like, the irreligious kind, but the dynamics are exactly the same, whether religious or irreligious. I want you to hear and I want you to feel what this slavery feels like in the words of all, of all people, Madonna. She says, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Feel, listen to how strong this language is. I push past one spell of inadequacy and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre. And uninteresting, again and again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Can you hear the slavery and the power, spiritual power and dynamic? Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. That's slavery, friends. You know what she's talking about, don't you? This is spiritual slavery. Let me tell you what Madonna's doing here. She's doing the same thing as the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son, who also felt deeply ashamed, deeply worthless, and deeply inadequate. Because what, he, what had he done? He'd squandered the father's wealth, he'd gone off to a faraway country, and he was ended up feeding pigs and he was a Jew. And how did he try and deal with that sense of shame? How did he try and deal with that sense of inadequacy? He came back to the father and he said, father, I'm no longer worthy. Can you feel the sense of worthlessness and inadequacy and shame? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Dad, I want to work my way back. I want to pay my own way back. I want to work my way back in and show you that I can be worthy. And what I'll do when you make me like one of your hired servants is what Madonna did. I'll work and work and work and work and work and you'll finally have to let me in and you'll and everyone else will finally be able to say that I am worthy and have no need to be ashamed. He's trying to pay off his debts. That's what Madonna's trying to do. Pay off her debts. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God and they took the fruit, how did they feel? Same way as Madonna, same way as the prodigal son, same way as we all do. Naked and ashamed. And how did they go about trying to fix that? They got to work. What did they do? They sewed together fig leaves to cover their nakedness and to cover their shame. This is slavery. This is trying to pay off our debts. 
And Paul is saying that if you take that approach, whether it's a secular approach or a religious one where it's reading the Bible and not swearing and blah, 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 either way, if you do that, you make yourself a slave to beings that are not God's. That when you worship and you have to have anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is all in all, that that thing that you worship takes on a spiritual power, that it becomes your master and you become its slave. Back in that day and in, in Galatia, that this, it was a religious form of slavery. But of course, we don't live in a religious society. And so it's an irreligious type of slavery and a type of worship that people say. It's the same thing. It's enslavement to idols and false worship. So in Galatia, verse 10, it's observing special days and months and seasons and years. But in our society, it's academic success, it's beauty, it's music, it's sport, it's money, it's ideology, it's politics, it's anything in creation. I mean, in Romans 1, Paul says that we worship the created instead of the creator. And when we do that, it becomes your master because you need it. You can't live without it. You have to have it. And that makes you a slave. May God, by your spirit, even now, break the chains and set us free. Bring the year of jubilee that we would know the freedom that Christ won for us on the cross through his life, death and resurrection. Even now, by your spirit. Well, I want to ask now, how? How do these things enslave? How do they become our masters and we become their slaves? And, and there's a word in the New Testament that Paul uses again and again. He uses it in Galatians. Um, and in, in the Greek, it's the word epithumia. Um, usually it gets translated uh, in the New Testament as the word lust. Uh, but, but the problem with that is that that just brings us a narrow kind of sexual lust uh, idea. But that's not what the word means. It, 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 just skip ahead in, in chapter 5, verse 16. Paul uses it there, and you'll see how it's translated. He uses it again and again in chapter 5. He, he says, live by the Spirit, I say. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires. That's the word epithumia. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. But even the word desire isn't great because really it's over-desire. It's, it's an over-desire, an inflated desire. You see, St. Augustine said that our main problem as people is disordered loves. Our main problem is disordered loves. Not that we love the wrong things, but that we love the right things in the wrong order. So music is a good thing. But it's far too easy, like Madonna, to turn that into a God thing, an ultimate thing. Sport or beauty or relationships or food or academics are good things, but it's far too easy to turn them into God things. And so we have an over-desire. We have a big love for something that should only take a small place. That's our problem. And of course, when you want this thing, whenever you fall flat on your face, whatever it is, whenever you fail, you're absolutely devastated. It's hell. You see, because secularists come up with a new definition of heaven is getting the thing that I want and hell is going without it. And so it's actually hell 
to fall on your face and to not get that thing that you so desperately want and you so desperately need. It's an unbearable hell. But of course, what we usually do, and I I know this well because I do it myself or I've done it myself, is that when we fall short, what do we do? We pick ourselves up again and we go, all right, this time I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to stay later. I'm going to be better. I'm going to work and work. I'm going to put more time in it. I'm going to put more money. I'm going to put more effort in than anyone else. And then I'll finally get it and I'll be happy. But here's what Paul is saying. The problem is not that you're not getting the thing that you want. That's not your problem. The problem is that you want it too much. The problem is epithume. You've turned it into an idol. The problem is your over-desire, disordered loves. And so the solution is not to redouble your efforts like Madonna. I've got an iron will and I'm just going to work harder to get it. No. The problem is that you need to bring those over-desires back down to size. You need to, as in the Old Testament happens so many times, tear down the idols. You need to say to it, you need to look it in the eye. And you say, I can see that you're a good thing, but I've turned you into a God thing so that I have to have you and I can't live without you. But now I can see that I've become a slave and you've been dragging me around like a ball and chain. Instead of saying Jesus plus nothing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Instead of saying Jesus is enough, Jesus is the only non-negotiable You look at your idol and you say, I've turned you into a non-negotiable so that I can't live without you and I have to have you. And now I can see that I've become a slave. That's idolatry. That's worship. And Paul says very clearly in our text that it's slavery to non-gods or 1 Corinthians 10 to, to demons. These things take on a spiritual power in our lives. And so how many people here this morning are in slavery or who know what that is, tastes like and feels like? May God, by his spirit, set us free this morning and show us the antidote. What, what is the antidote? What, what is the solution? What, 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 how do we break free? Friends, remember the memory verse from Galatians 1 verse 3? He says, grace and peace to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? Who gave himself for our sins to do what? To set us free from this present evil age. It's all there in the gospel and the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's there as well in verse 9. Have a look. He, he says their former ways and now they're, they're where they are now. He says in verse 9, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. What does he say that? He says to know God, and oh no, rather to be known by God. He's not saying, well, you haven't come to know God. He, he's saying it's a matter of priority and importance. Which is more important, that you know God or that God knows you? You see, what I think, well, the reason I think he's doing that is because he's saying, if you base your confidence, if you base your worth or on your knowledge of God, your knowledge, of, if you base your confidence and worth on that, the danger is that we fall into the same game. Salvation 
by works, where the most knowledgeable people are up the top of the pecking order and the least knowledgeable people are down at the bottom. In fact, I'm sure that's why my library over next door is so big and I've got so many books. It's justification by knowledge. Justification by books. Whoever dies with the most books wins. I come to the pearly gates. Oh, Kieran, why should I let you in? Look at my look books, Lord. But friends, make no mistake, if you're sitting there and you're thinking bad about yourself because you know so little or if you ever have done, you're playing exactly the same game. If you're sitting there thinking God could never use me because I know so little, you're playing exactly the same game, exactly the same game. Justification by knowledge. Justification by your knowledge of God. Do do people know what I'm talking about? Oh, come on. Paul says, rather, that you are known by God. A foundation for our righteousness is God's knowledge of us. Do you see how deeply religious we are? Like Adam and Eve, like Madonna, like the younger son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants so I can work off my debt with my knowledge, my good looks, my personality, my ideology. This is slavery, Paul is saying. Richard Lovelace says this, and mark it well. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. That's, that's me. <laughs> that's why I became a minister. That's why I've got the books. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. And so Paul says, yes, you've come to know God, but more importantly, God knows you. So stop boasting in the fact that I know God and start boasting in the fact that God knows me. And of course, no is not some dry, academic, cold knowledge. No, it's, it's, it's he loves you. He knows you. He embraces you as the father embraces the son. That's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about. Galatians 4 verse 6, he's put the spirit of his son in our our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This is a deep, intimate and personal knowledge. You see, the only thing that will fortify us against temptation when the idols come knocking and we can't, we want them and we need them and we can't live without them is the knowledge of God and his love for us in Christ that fills us to overflowing When you're tempted and losing control, you have to find your idols, that thing you're so desperate for, and you you need to stare it in the face and you say, I don't need you. I don't need you because I have all that I need in Christ and his love for me through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And you need to experience that. You need to have a rich prayer life. You need to have an experience of that where you enjoy the love of the Father for you in prayer, in, in worship. You need to experience what he's talking about, your sonship, your adoption. You need to hear him say in your heart, this is my son whom I love. This is my daughter whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. But you know what? Too often we're like the teenage girl who says, yeah, but what good is that if I can't get the boy I like to love me? 
What good is that if I can't get the boy that I like to love me? Are you crazy? Can you hear what you're saying? Blaise Pascal said that all of us have a God-shaped void in our hearts that can only be filled with God. And you think you can fill that God-shaped void with that? Whatever it is that you're chasing after, whatever it is that you're bowing down to, you think that's going to be big enough to fill the God-shaped void inside your heart? You've got to be kidding me. It'll leave you empty and coming back begging and working and slaving for more and more and more. Can you see that's why Paul uses that phrase? How can you turn back again to those weak and beggarly elemental spirits? They're they're the words, aren't they? Weak and beggarly. They can't fill you and they leave you as a slave and a beggar begging for more. And so the way is to turn to God and his love for us and our knowledge of him. And so I want to leave you with two saints who have written hymns who tried to do exactly that when the idols came knocking and trying to make them slaves again, to be free from that slavery and to be filled with the love of God. And the first one is written by a guy called William Cowper who suffered awful chronic depression and suicidal thoughts and so who who needed the love of God to fill his heart and he says this and this is needs to be our prayer the dearest idol I have known whatever that idol be help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee the next verse is from uh, Hudson Taylor the great uh, missionary And uh, after he died, they found a a little piece of paper in his diary and and it was covered in so many creases and so tattered and worn that they could tell from looking at it that it was something that he um, came back to daily again and again and again to remind himself of these truths. And this is what it said. O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen. More dear, more infinitely nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. Hudson Taylor was saying, that's the only way I'll break free. That's the only way I'll be free. Be free from the idols and the enslaving power of those things. O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. And that's our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for showing us just how weak and miserable it is to be beholden and enslaved to things that by nature are not God's, whether that's through irreligious service of worldly false gods or whether that's through religious service, as if you don't already accept us in the beloved. Thank you for showing us how weak and miserable it is to be beholden to them. And thank you that you sent Jesus to set us free. He lived the perfect life and he died the death that we deserved. And so please, Father, help us to abandon our efforts at self-salvation and trying to pay off our debt as if you didn't already pay it off for us on the cross. Lord, help us to rest instead in the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And please, by your spirit, help us to stand in that freedom and that joy and to be free from idols, full of grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free 
from this present evil age. And everyone said, Amen.